Good evening, everyone. How you guys doing? Guys, that rainstorm's crazy, right? Like, it was such a great afternoon. I, I could probably say this on most Sundays, actually, just most days at NNY in Florida. But, like, like you, the day was perfect, other than being incredibly hot and muggy. But besides that, it was a beautiful day. And then, you know, the rainstorm comes in. Okay, so last week, we concluded our series that we went throughout the summer called Revive Us. Uh, and uh, if you joined with us at any point of that, it was, I mean, for me personally, it was just a wonderful reminder of what it means to draw near to Jesus, uh, both in one-on-one intimacy with him, as well as in community. But, uh, but if you joined us for the first time within that series, or tonight is your first time, uh, you may be unfamiliar with the regular rhythm in which we uh, handle teaching uh, as a church. So, so just so that we're all on the same page, the way that we most often teach the scriptures uh, within the context of the gathering is we do it by going through entire books of the Bible from start to finish. Uh, we started with Genesis 16 years ago, and the joke is we've been in the same series ever since, uh, and uh, which is really fun because the Disney campus is only 10 years old, which means we were going for six years into a series before we even ever started as a, a gathering together. Um, but what's been so cool to me as in the last eight years that I have been around is that as we have gone through these books, I mean, it, we're kind of just going based on chronology. And it's still so timely every time. Every time we step into a new book of the Bible, it's like, oh man, that was what I needed in this season. This is what we need in this season. So I'm trusting that that is what God is going to be up to as we begin our journey into the letter to Timothy. We know it is 1 Timothy. Now this book is only six chapters long and it is often cited in books and sermons and in podcasts and in other spaces. And uh, it's, it's, so it's not very long, but it is, gets a, a decent amount of topic and thought on it. Um, it's so short, in fact, that in the scripture journals that we are giving out, uh, they include three of these small letters into it just to justify the printing cost, right? So, by the way, we still have a few extras, I think. You can pick one up when you take off tonight. Um, and this is what I'm going to be using as we go um, when I am teaching from it and when I'm personally studying it to take notes and underline and do all that kind of stuff. Now, before we get into, into the text itself, what I want you to do is imagine something for me. Imagine someone walks up to you and looks at you, makes awkward eye contact with you, and then says, don't do it and then walks away. What do you do? What do you do? Hey, hold on. I have some more questions. Oh, you're gone. Okay. Like, what, what are you thinking? And I'd be thinking, what shouldn't I do? What was I going to do? Does he know what I was going to do? And now I shouldn't do it? What, did he confuse me for somebody else? Like, what, what was the it that I shouldn't be doing? And should, am I the one who shouldn't be doing the it in which he spoke? In other words... In other words, you have no context for the statement. So the statement doesn't carry much weight or meaning. It's just like confusing, right? Context matters. 
Context matters. It's why, as a church, we put so much focus into context whenever we're teaching the scriptures in any ministry environment, whether it's here on a Sunday or it's in Bible study on Tuesday, which, guys, it starts in two days. I'm so excited to be there. Book of Acts, because so good. All right. But in any of our contexts, we encourage you to truly dive in to understand what's happening in the context. See, the goal is not just to give you fish but it's to invite you onto a fishing trip where we all go fishing together. See, with any part of the Bible, there can be this easy temptation to see the truths of the scripture as if it is a fish um, where you eat the bits that are tasty to you and you kind of spit out the stuff that's less appealing. But isn't this the kind of the entire concept of a bias? See, we, we, I mean, we each have a bias, right? Like we can be honest enough to recognize that. Like I have a bias, you have a bias. We get a bias from the, the, the media we take in, the way we were brought up, the friend group we have, the thoughts we have, our own sinful tendencies. Like all those things create the bias that is me or you or any of us, right? But the question is, do we acknowledge those? See, when we give into our biases, when it comes to our way that we handle the scriptures, is we ultimately will misunderstand it. We minimize the intent of the scriptures. We misunderstand God's, God's voice within the scriptures. And we start to see the scriptures as something it's not meant to be. For example, just a list of do's and don'ts that may or may not be relevant to your life or mine. And we miss the beautiful reality that it is meant to be. A conversation and a revelation of God to his people. So I want to start tonight before we even get into 1 Timothy by handing you a tool that I have used ever since I was in seminary all the way, way back, you know, I'm getting so old now. Um, but way back when I was in seminary, I read a book that was like this thick for my hermeneutics class. And uh, now there's a shorter version of it, thank God. Uh, and it's so good. But in it, there's a tool that I wanted to share with you tonight because it's been super helpful for me as I continue to desire to learn and grow in my ability to interpret the scriptures well and wisely. It's called the interpretive journey. And before we get into it, let me just share a little bit about it. The interpretive journey is the concept of when we approach the scriptures, we think of it not as just a textbook to study, but a journey to go on, to understand it, to live in it, and to figure out what does it mean for our lives today. So uh, I, I, later on, I can show you the original version of it, uh, the, of the uh, metaphor kind of put into a pictograph. But I uh, asked my brother, who happens to be a storyboard, storyboard artist, to reimagine this metaphor for us visually so that uh, you guys might think it's cool because I, I thought it was pretty cool. So with that in mind, I'm going to take you briefly through, um, through the interpretive journey. Now, I'm going to do a really quick overview on it. Um, the reality is... Is you could, we could easily teach a class on it. And who knows, we might in the, in the months and years ahead. But for tonight, I'm going to give you the overview of the interpretive journey. Sound cool? Okay, cool. And if you are a note-taking kind of person, this would be a pretty decent thing to take notes on if you were me. Okay, so step one, when we are going to the scriptures, our first step is to grasp the text in their town to grasp the text in their town, to visualize what did this mean then to the people it was written to? How would have they received this, whatever this truth is, this reality is? And this would lead us to this question. 
What did the text mean to the biblical audience? What's the literary context? What's the historical context? What's going on? How would they have understood it? So you want to grasp the text in their town. Now, what's so easy for us to do today? We see the text and we go straight to our town. We'd go, oh, there it is. So what does that mean for me? Or we go, oh, I don't like the way that sounds. So let's just toss that one right out. No, we want to grasp the text in their town. Step two is we measured the width of the river to cross. So what are the differences? Culture, language, time, situation. What are those differences between their, their reality and our reality? We just want to acknowledge those things. So the question is, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? Step three, crossing the principalizing bridge. Big word, but what is the principle underneath? The question would be this, what is the theological principle in this text? What is, in other words, transferable? See, here's where the concept of bias becomes super important that we acknowledge because we need to always, when we are approaching the scriptures, being willing to say, I'm going to trust that the, scripture, the scriptures know more than I do. It is filled with more wisdom than I have. It is more true than what I believe to be true. So it has to start with, I want to put myself under the authority of the scriptures because within it, we discover God's voice. So we want to continually submit, what am I learning and being open? God, whatever you're saying in this, I want to be open to that reality. So this takes us to the fourth step. After we've crossed the principalizing bridge, we want to consult the biblical map. So this is asking the question, how does that theological principle fit in with the rest of the scriptures? Because if you have a principle that is only found in a specific verse by your interpretation of it, well, you want to have it within the entire breadth of the scriptures. Because within it, we find a consistency of what is God doing, what the story is telling, so that we don't take things out of context. And this protects us from taking a principle that we might hope to be true and ensuring that it is actually true and consistent with God's voice in the Bible. So we consult the biblical map. And specifically, we always want to ensure that we take it to the, to the foot of the cross. What does this mean in light of the gospel? How does the gospel within the scriptures reorient our understanding of that principle? And then fifthly, and finally, grasping the text in our town. Again, like that's where we would typically go, right? What does this mean for me? But no, this is obviously a lot more work. It's a lot more process. It's a, a lot more rich. So we go through the entire journey and then we figure out what does this mean in our town, in our world today? So how should individual Christians today live out this theological principle in our lives? Because again, as we talked about within our Revival series, the, our goal as we interact with God's voice is to shema, the Hebrew word for listen and obey his voice. And so this interpretive journey allows us the opportunity to do that. That as we do this with a heart that is willing to receive whatever God has for us, we go from their town to our town today. And we do it in a way where we interpret the scriptures, hopefully more and more well and wisely. Now that's the interpretive journey. That's the 50,000 foot view of it. But tonight we're gonna unearth the riches of this small letter of 1 Timothy. And we're going to do this by taking the time to sit in the story and to live in the relationship of the author and his intended audience. 
And so what we're going to be doing on that interpretive journey is we're going to spend tonight in step one, grasping the text in their town. So what does this mean? Where are we going with this letter? What has happened so far? So let's begin. First Timothy chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this letter begins by telling us two things that we could probably quickly outline, um, underline or highlight. Two names, Paul and Timothy, the author and his intended audience. Now, you may have heard about Paul before. If you've been around here, we've been journeying through his letters a lot over the last few years. Paul has been around the church for a long time at this point. See, Paul, as we know him, uh, was the Greek name of a Jewish guy by the name of Saul. Now, Saul was, was born and raised in a space outside of Israel, a place called Tarsus in the Roman Empire. And because he was born in the Roman Empire, even though he was ethnically and religiously Jewish, he was also handed by birth Roman citizenship, which would become a really big deal in his story. Now, he was raised, though, ethnically and religiously Jewish, which means that he was brought up into the ways of the Torah to uncover God throughout the Torah. Now, he was such a devoted and talented scholar uh, and wise thinker that he became a part of the governing body of the Jewish people, a group of people known as the Sanhedrin. Now, for Paul, he was religiously devoted to God. He was a fierce advocate for swift justice and would absolutely advocate for what he knew to be true. Now, we don't discover him in the gospel accounts, but in the book of Acts, he book of Acts, he bursts onto the scene like a hurricane. He was present, the first time we get his name uh, uttered, is he was present at the, the first martyrdom in the history of the church when a, a deacon, of a servant of the early church, a guy named Stephen, was killed for his faith. And it says that Paul was there holding everyone's coats. Now, soon after, he didn't just hold coats. He wanted to go after these followers of Jesus who were getting it all wrong. They were bringing God's name through the dirt and he hated them for it. He was going to make sure that they saw swift and immediate justice. So he sets off on this crusade and he's heading towards a place called Damascus and he's ready to make a demonstration of the house churches there. And he wants to show them what happens if you stand against God. Little did he know that he was the one that was actually standing against God and his people. So, you know, it doesn't always work out the way you plan. But Jesus ends up meeting Paul on the road and he reveals himself to Paul. Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, in that moment, Jesus is kind of saying like, kind of, Paul, I, I love your effort. I love your zeal, your passion, top notch, right? But like you're doing it literally the exact opposite of the right way in every conceivable way. Stop it, you know? And what he does is Paul receives that. And in that moment, Jesus takes one of his biggest opponents and calls him his own. 
Isn't that insane? I don't know who you have in your mind as far as like, who is the least person you would ever expect to respond to the gospel? That was Paul. And he calls him an apostle. To be an apostle is to be a sent one. And Paul begins a process of reconciliation and restoration by the spirit of God in his life and in his relationships as he brought his dead heart back to life. And as Paul is discipled into the way of Jesus, he begins to become known for his love of Jesus. And while the early church super didn't trust him for a, for a minute, like they were like, dude, we, we believe that God's really powerful, but you were like killing us five minutes ago. So let's hold on on the hugs right now, right? But soon he would become known as a disciple of Jesus and a discipler of others into the way of Jesus. And he would be sent off into new territories to plant new churches, to see the kingdom of God expand with outposts across the ancient world. Throughout the course of his life, he'd go on three major missionary journeys. The first of which took him through a space of, of a province of the Roman empire called Galatia. And while there, he went through a city called Lystra. And now whenever Jesus, or whenever Jesus, whenever Paul would go into a, a new city, he would always go first to the synagogue where the Jewish believers would all come together to worship. And he would go and tell them that the Messiah, the awaited one had come. And he would always bring the gospel first to the Jews. Typically, they didn't love it. And uh, typically, they would throw him out of synagogue after a little bit. And so after a while, then he would leave the synagogue with anyone who did respond. And then he would start forming a new church and he would preach the gospel to anyone who would listen. And so it is likely that in this first missionary journey, when these early converts to following after Jesus are made, there's a family who comes to know him. A grandmother named Lois, a mother named Eunice and a half Jewish son named Timothy. Now we'll get back to Timothy in a second, but in Lystra, Paul ends up healing a crippled man who's on the ground and he, and, the, and he says, get up and walk. And the dude does it. He gets up and he walks and people's eyes are like blown. They're like, what just happened? And in fact, all the, all the, the Greeks that are there, they, they love it. They're super excited to see this happen because they are convinced that Paul and his buddy Barnabas, who went there together, these guys are Greek gods. Like they saw them in the flesh and they get so excited. They start telling their friends. They're like tweeting it out. Like they're, they're posting, like it's epic. And, and then some guy goes and gets a sacrificial cow and they're going to they're gonna have a feast. Like, this is big news. God's in our town. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Just, just a dude here. Just, just a guy. Just a human. But, but, do you want to meet, you want to meet our God? I can, I can, I have the hookup. Like, I can introduce you to a real God. His name's Jesus. They don't, they don't like the invitation very much. And so they end up taking a bunch of stones and, and throwing them at Paul and hard to the point where he is on the floor outside of the town and they think he's dead. That's the only reason they stop is because they think he's dead. Not a great day. But then these new believers, the guys who just came to Christ like minutes, days before, all come out to Paul pray over him. And Paul pops up and walks back into town. 
Soon after, Paul takes off and he continues on his missionary journey. A few years goes by and Paul ends up on another missionary journey. And while he's gone, he ends up inviting Timothy to be his apprentice when he makes his way through Lystra again. And Timothy says yes. Now, here's why that's a big deal. Because the average person didn't leave a few miles out of their zip code their entire life in the ancient world. You were born, raised, lived, and died in the, essentially the same geographic location. You didn't go far. But here is Timothy boldly saying, yeah, I'll go with the guy who builds tents on the side to make an income and go preach the gospel that people keep getting mad at him about. Good idea. But Timothy goes and he learns what it looks like to make disciples of Jesus, how to share the gospel, how to plant churches, how to shepherd those churches once they're existing. And so Paul and Timothy become missionary partners for the course of about eight years. They plant churches in Macedonia and Greece and Turkey. And if your um, eighth grade world history mind uh, isn't bringing back that ancient Near East world map, that those are pretty very dispersed places, okay, in the ancient world. But you see, they're not just coworkers. Paul loves Timothy. He invests in Timothy. He doesn't see him as just an apprentice, but even as a son. He pours his life into Timothy. He builds him up and he cares deeply for him. Now, throughout their journey, they would kind of do this. They'd part ways for a time and come back together. It's like God continued to bring their stories into a pattern of weaving. Now, about three years into their journey together, Paul ends up planting a church in the city of Ephesus. I don't know if you remember when we were studying Ephesians last year, uh, but, he, but Paul ends up spending three years there. It is one of the longest places he spends in one city the entire time that he knows Jesus until his death. So Paul spends three years going from synagogue to new church to established church for three years investing in these women and men pouring his life and his shepherding skill and his passion into them. I mean, think about anytime you're with the same group of friends for about three years time, you can start to build some pretty good relationships, right? So Paul, this was his beloved church. About a year after he leaves them though, it says that he, uh, we discover he's on his way to Jerusalem and at some point in the journey, he ends up speaking again with the elders in Ephesus, but he gives them some warnings this time. He warns them that there are starting to become false teachers in their midst and they need to be on guard with that and be prepared to teach the full counsel of God so that those people won't be led astray by all this false teaching, all this terrible doctrine. So he tells them as shepherds to shepherd the flock as overseers, that they need to be on guard and doing their job as shepherds over the sheep that they've been entrusted with. Well, whether or not they did a great job at, at following in that, I, I don't know. But what we do know is that about three years later, Paul ends up imprisoned. And now he's imprisoned in Rome. He's under house imprisonment. And while he's in house imprisonment, he writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, essentially repeating all the same things to them again. How much he deeply cares about them, his deep desire for them to be unified in the midst of all the oppositions around them, that they would see themselves as one, 
Because you see in this church, they had been dividing ethnically between the Jews and the non-Jews. But Paul's like, no, we don't have a theological paradigm for that. We only are meant to see one another as brothers and sisters. So to be unified, to see yourselves as all adopted members into the family of God and to be on guard because there is a real spiritual enemy who wants to bring death and destruction and chaos into the church. So he says to put on the full armor of God, the beauty and the power of the gospel, not to rely on their own strength, but to trust in the strength of what Jesus has already done on their behalf. And that we know is the letter to the Ephesians, the the book of Ephesians. Now, sometime later, it is likely that Paul ends up released from prison in Rome and he goes with Timothy this time back to Ephesus. So he takes his beloved son to his beloved church and he drops off Timothy there and he says, shepherd this church. Some point, Paul ends up back in prison and he finds himself far from his beloved disciple and his beloved church. But yet, those same problems are still persisting in this church that he loves so much. So he and his scribe sit down and they begin to pen this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Context matters. See, Paul would be the first person to tell you that he was not special. In fact, he said, I'm the chief of all sinners. Like if you ever in a room and you're wondering who the worst person in the room is, like that's this guy. He wasn't, he didn't think he was special, but he knew he was called. So notice when he says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by his own awesomeness. No, by command of God, our savior in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, his greatest desire is to simply live in his calling. I think that is so beautiful. Not to rest in your own talents and abilities and skill set, but to go, God, what are you calling me into? It reminds me of the old adage. Maybe you've heard it before. Uh, God doesn't, uh, he doesn't, Call the qualified, he qualifies the called. I think that's so good and so true. And then we discover who he's writing it to, that second name, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. See, he's not just using really nice poetic language to talk about Timothy. He is expressing genuine affection in this letter. See, here's what's interesting about this letter. This is only the second time um, thus far as we have journeyed through that we have read an entire letter that is written to an individual. Remember how we talked about before that typically the letters in the New Testament and the scriptures as a whole are written to a y'all, not just to a you. But this is actually written to a you, to a Timothy. But it's not just for a Timothy. It's for Timothy to a church. So he ends with this blessing. I I love this blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace. Are there three things that you or I need more than grace, mercy, and peace? Grace, to receive what we don't deserve. Mercy, not receiving the punishment that we do deserve. Peace, a life of genuine flourishing with Jesus. 
wouldn't you be like, wouldn't you be excited if a friend texts you tomorrow morning and just like you wake up with that text message? I, hey, just praying for you to be filled with grace, mercy, and peace as you go about your day today. Like, it's a pretty good one. Maybe do that tomorrow morning. I don't know. Are you starting to see that the letter of 1 Timothy is a highly relational letter? It is written from a spiritual father to a spiritual son who has been called to shepherd a spiritual family. In fact, we discover this more in depth uh, when we get into 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul Paul expresses his why. Like he gives us very clearly why he wrote this letter. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, because you know, again, in prison, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, um, Pillar, we kind of know what that means. Buttress, uh, if you didn't take history of architecture, let me tell you. A buttress is uh, a, a support beam that helps uh, support up entire structures. And so when he is saying this, what he is getting at is that his teaching, what he wants them to understand is that the church is meant to be the support structure to see the family of God live and flourish together. Paul wants so badly to be with this beloved church and his beloved disciple. He can't. He's in prison. So he sends this letter to encourage and challenge Timothy so that he would encourage and challenge this church. Now, throughout this letter, we are going to discover that this church has been living in all kinds of chaos and disunity. They have been following false teachers who tell them all the things that they want to hear. They have been turning against one another in pride, They've been living lives not fully submitted to Jesus. They've been lacking the organizational and leadership structures that they need for their community to to thrive together. And what we will discover is though, is not just a list of corrections. It's that Paul is encouraging Timothy to care for a church that he wants nothing but good for. He wants to see this community flourish. See, this is not a letter of random corrections and statements. It's a relational letter written to see this church flourish together in life. So context really does matter. And see, we so easily read the scriptures as um, a book of disconnected sayings and stories rather than one cohesive story that leads us to Jesus. And we can do one of two things. We either uh, copy and paste verses into our lives without understanding their context or because we don't understand the context and we're afraid of what it can mean to our lives. We just simply go delete, 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 you know, and it backspaces all the way through and we're like, now that's my Bible. But when we do the hard work of interacting with the scriptures, of going on the interpretive journey, and studying and meditating on the word of God, allowing God's voice to speak into our lives and allowing us to listen and respond in obedience to whatever he says, whether it's what we want or not. When we do that, when we do that, we set ourselves into a space to simply draw near to Jesus and to look around 
and see that we are with others who are united at his feet with us. See, 1 Timothy is a book with a context. It's a relational letter to help a church flourish. Now, we are a different church in a different context in a different time. But yet God's desire is still for his church to grow in love and unity together. I'm gonna invite the band to come on forward. Now, we want to drive home the point that this is a highly relational letter. And so some of our friends went through an insane amount of effort to make these realities this week. This is gonna be for you. We have a copy for each of you. This is the letter from Paul to Timothy. They even burnt the edges and stuff in a cool like stamp. Like like, this is pretty cool. I'm super impressed. Um, And the heart behind this is that you would have something as you go to meditate on the scriptures, to be reminded that it is one cohesive story, that it is truly a letter, not a bunch of disjointed statements and sayings. And so take one of these home. And what I'd encourage you is as we are in this letter for the next however many months it takes us to get through six chapters of the Bible, um, our encouragement to you would be to simply maybe once a week on Mondays, you read the entire letter of 1 Timothy. Again, it's only six chapters. It wouldn't take you very long. And allow this to really draw you near. You'll notice that there are no verses, no chapter markers on this. And it's just to be a reminder that it is a letter. Now, with all that in mind, my hope is that you might join with me now, praying for us and all who will join us throughout this series, that we would hear and obey God's voice as we study this letter. And in doing so, we would discover more and more of what the Spirit wants to do in our midst. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this letter that you have allowed to be in the pages of the Bible for us. We know it was penned by Paul and probably a scribe, but it was inspired and directed by your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray that you would just help us to meditate on it, to study it, to walk through the interpretive journey or whatever Bible study technique is most helpful for each one of us. So that as we study this this book, we would do it well and wisely. And what we would discover is Paul's deep love for this church. And ultimately that would just be a signpost of your deep love for your church. The one in Ephesus so many centuries ago. The one here across the street from Walt Disney World right now. Lord, your kids need you. We are living in a world divided. Division in the church, frustration, misunderstandings, heartbreak, grief, loss, fears. Your kids need you, Father. I need you. Your sons and daughters need you. I pray that our ears would be open to hearing your voice, that our lives would never be the same. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.